So according to a CBS poll, this is interesting, it says most Americans have experienced true love in their lives. Every time I hear true love, I think of like the princess bride, true love, you know, that, that whole scene. Uh, but this is what they found in the poll. It's, it says 86% of Americans think true love exists. So we got some good optimists there. Well, 67 say that they've experienced it themselves, that is true love. Well, a large majority of both men and women say they have experienced it themselves. A woman, say, are 69% are slightly more likely to say they've experienced it than men. I guess men are more pessimistic. 64% men have said they've experienced it. So, so yeah, most Americans are going to say, yeah, they've experienced love in their life and everything. And uh, But in order to know that you've experienced love, you have to have some general idea as to what is love. What is that thing called love? And things start getting a bit foggy because we use the word love in like a variety of different ways all the time. I mean, a person can go on a nice romantic date, you know, and the word love can be used uh, like many different times within a 30 minute period. I mean, you could say, for instance, I love this pasta, right? Or you say, I love it when you say that to me, or I love you. And I can tell you that love is being used completely different here uh, because the way that you love pizza or pasta is not the same way that you love your spouse or kids. And if you do, then you probably need to get some help. Let's be honest. I mean, if you think it's the same kind of love. <laughs> cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. It's not good. Um, don't do that. So when I speak of the meaning of love here, I mean true love of persons, not of food items or what people say. We need the biblical guidance on this because there is no other word more confused, more convoluted than the word love. And it makes for like a bunch of bizarre, weird definitions that people give love. I, I always think of this one, the uh, classic quote from the movie The Love Story. It's an older movie. Love is never having to say you are sorry. I'm just curious. It's an older movie. Who's heard that quote before? Okay. Uh, some people. Yeah. Well, anybody who's married knows that you say sorry a lot. And sometimes you don't even know what you're saying sorry for. You just say it because... I said it. You said it, not me. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'll just give you some cheesy, corny examples of, of what people think love is. And I got it from like a really respectable scholarly site called uh, the One Love website. High quality. No, it's not. It's just a pop website. And yeah, 10, 10 people explain what this is. These are random people. These are not celebrities. This is like people on the street. What love is to them. Ash D says, for me, love is the most secure feeling. Love is having a companion, best friend, lover, partner, sounding board, cheerleader, advisor, and cuddle buddy through every avenue in the journey of life. So it's all about cuddleship, feelings, partnership, according to this guy. Kurt S. writes, uh, and I'm not saying love doesn't involve those things, but how do we want to really define love here? Kurt S. writes, love is a sentiment not able to be characterized by words. So it's this kind of indescribable feeling that, that this, this person says. Skylar M. says, to me, a healthy relationship is built on respect for one another. Each person understands the commitment they are making to the other person. So it's kind of mutuality, respect, and these kind of things. That's what love is. Zane P. and this guy, I don't, this is probably one of the worst, worst definitions here. But he says, a healthy relationship could describe a plethora of different types of relationships, but the most important aspect of a relationship is being in sync. 
not just a boy band. Whether you both talk through every hour of, of the waking day or whether you agree that you're both busy and you'll talk on the phone. At the end of the day, as long as you are both in agreement, that's what's important. Agreement. So it's about agree, agreeing, affirming each other. And so... I don't think, I mean, if this is what love is, this kind of agreement, uh, then I've never met a husband or a wife who's loved each other because, let's be honest, you get married, disagreements just pop up, you know? You think you, you, think you tackle one, it's like those, um, those gof gophers at like a circus, you know, you, you, they pop up, you pop up one and then it pops up. That's what marriage is like. You guys, you're always working out differences that you have. And, and so that, I don't think love can be defined that way as affirmation or agreement. And on top of that, you have this kind of really sloppy kind of, I think it's, it's popular in culture, it's popular everywhere, but the romance you have loved, which is, you've invaded our churches, people think this, it involves this wild, crazy, mad feeling, chemicals going, passion, lust, this kind of love. And this is how Pedro de la Barca puts it, you know, when love is not madness, it is not love. So love is this crazed, you know, maddening kind of, just insatiable feeling. Now, problem with this romance view of love, it's kind of crazy rush for you, is that butterflies in your stomach go away pretty, pretty quick when your spouse eats garlic. Or you're living in the same house with a bunch of kids that have stomach flus. I'm sure there's people watching online that are sick, you know, Thanksgiving. I know there is. Uh, you know, and they're like, yeah, that's what we're experiencing. And we're, you know, you have small kids and they're they're snot and you're running, people are running around and you're, you know, the butterflies leave pretty quick. Okay. Uh, and yet people still love their spouses when they're dealing with the messiness of relationships, kids, trials, cancer, job loss, vomiting, all the things we deal with. And here is the thing. People will leave their spouses over the romance view of, of, uh, of love uh, because they no longer have that wild madness, that lustful feeling. They don't have the butterflies in the stomach. And so they find it at the bar or at the office and it makes them feel alive and young again with this wild feeling. And so people will leave their families. Say, so, you know, I don't love my wife anymore. You know, I need to pursue this new person because I get all excited around them, you know. And so that's how people will view and define love. And it has consequences. It has real-world consequences. If we have the wrong view of love, it hurts relationships. It hurts marriages. It hurts relationships with people in the church. It hurts our relationship with our kids. And if you have an unbiblical view of love, it just ruins a lot of things in your life. And it brings confusion to your life. I'll give you an example. Take this affirmation. Or acceptance you of love that it says in order for me to love you I must agree with you on everything and I must accept everything about you and your lifestyle so uh, so if I don't agree or accept you in every aspect of your life if I don't agree with your lifestyle if I don't from your lifestyle then I hate you and I reject you on this view now the problem it's pretty obvious say my son and daughter God forbid you know they become drug addicts or something now I would obviously don't I don't agree with your lifestyle I don't affirm their lifestyle. I disagree with their values and how they're making choices if they're drug addicts, right? Does that follow, therefore, that I hate my children? No, I would greatly love my children. It's interesting because if I didn't tell them I disagree with their lifestyle, if I didn't tell them they were following the wrong path, and I supported them in their drug use, that I would be unloving, not loving. It would be the opposite of love in the most intuitive sense. Another clear point, uh, it's obvious, you don't agree with your enemies. 
People that don't like you, you don't agree with them. A person does not, uh, you know, does not affirm the lifestyle of their enemies who wants to see harm done to them. But what does Jesus say on the most, you know, most powerful sermon, the Sermon on the Mount? He says that we should love our enemies. And everybody recognizes the type of love that Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount is the most beautiful and ethically amazing thing ever taught about love by anyone. It's not surprising since Jesus is God and the Bible is the word of God that this would be taught in that. And Jesus says that love is important. It is foundational. It is a foundational thing we should pursue in the Christian life. The most important thing, the greatest commandment, Mark 12, 28 to 31. And the one of the scribes came up and they heard uh, from disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. These are the greatest commandments, and it involves love. Love is a part of the greatest commandment in the Bible. So it's kind of, as Ron Burgundy would put it, kind of a big deal. And we see this big deal here in John 13, 34 to 35, says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not how intellectually smart or, or you know, how smooth you are, how fancy you are. No, those are not how people will know us as Jesus' disciples. It is love. So we can see from the Word of God here, the Christian life, one of the most foundational things is love. If you don't get or understand what love is or know what it is, then you have trouble understanding Christianity at all. You have trouble understanding what the gospel is. And we're going to see the connection between love and the gospel here. So let's see in Romans 12, 9, looking at this verse. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, the, the Greek word that uh, Paul uses here for love is a Greek word agape, Greek word agape. And there's, there's different, Greek has different, I mean, the Bible was written in Koine Greek. We know how to translate it. We know all that kind of stuff. And um, it was used in the time when Jesus was around was Koine Greek. And uh, there's other Greek words like eros, which is, you know, erotic or romantic love. That's one way. But that, that, Word uh, in Greek does not appear actually in the New Testament. It appears in outside secular sources. Then you have phileo, which is another Greek word which describes, oh, uh, well, maybe Jesus is coming back when you hear a sound like that, <laughs> which, which describes more kind of brotherly love usually. But then this Greek word agape, the one that Paul uses here in Romans, this word is huge because this, is, this describes not only our love for each other as Christians, but it describes God's love for us. God's love for us is what agape is used. It's the most used word for love in the New Testament. Romans 5, 6 through 8 uses this. For while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one dare even die. But God shows his love for us. Love. Agape. For us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of God. This agape love is a love, a sacrifice, making a sacrifice for someone who's not good. In fact, here, for someone who's bad, for your enemy. 
Love uh, is, is one that gives and gives. It doesn't take, but it just gives, irrespective of how good the person is. It's just a gracious thing. That's where we get the definition of, of love. The, the, the idea of agape love means to sacrifice for others. Giving and sacrificing is at the very heart of what it means to truly love someone and to love God. This is not just my opinion. This comes from the words of Jesus himself in John 15, 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life, sacrificing his life for his friends. So the greatest and highest uh, expression of love is sacrificing yourself, giving up your life. So then it follows that making choices to sacrificing other things is an is, is expression of, of true love. 1 John 3.16 confirms this also. By this, we know love, agape, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, for other Christians. So we see here in these passages that love, the definition of love, is an intentional choice. It's not a feeling, a choice to sacrifice yourself for others. It, is, it shows as itself as acts of service for others. It manifests that way externally. So when a husband loves his wife, for instance, right, it, he is making a lifelong committed choice of committing himself for self-giving sacrifice for his wife. It's no wonder that husbands and Christ are compared in terms of laying down their, their, their life for like Jesus lays down his life for the church. So the husband lays down his life, his whole life for a spouse. He sacrifices for his wife. Now you might be thinking if you've been to any Christian wet weddings, like what's the verse people read about love? Does anybody know? Does anybody remember? If you go into a wedding and someone's going to talk about love, they're going to pull out a, a verse, you know, I mean, first Corinthians 13. Yeah, there we go. I mean, if you've seen the walk to remember that's, that's in that one too, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the wedding. It's the wedding chapter. It's the wedding verse, right? I've done a lot of weddings and everybody wants first Corinthians 13. And so you say, Nate, isn't that the definition of love right there? First Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient. Love is kind, not jealous, easily angered. Isn't that going to be your working definition of love? Well, it, it is, but what it's doing is I'm sorry, but to be patient, with some people, you really have to sacrifice. Let's be honest. <laughs> to be kind to some people, as in, I mean, everybody's going to have a bad day. You have to, to be kind all the time involves sacrifice, right? And with some people that are doing really well, it's hard not to get jealous and Facebook stalk them and say, gosh, I wish I had a house like that. Or gosh, I wish I wouldn't have done that after high school or whatever. <laughs> this is TMI right now. Seriously, man, I swear. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it involves sacrifice, right? And so what 1 Corinthians 13 is, is giving characteristics of love of which all of those characteristics can be described as involving self-sacrifice. So that's still the definition of love. They're just giving, yeah, patience is an instance of self-sacrifice. Not being jealous is an instance of sacrificing and dying to self. Now, Paul exhorts us here to uh, have love be, be genuine. Uh, the Greek word here just simply means without hypocrisy, sincere. We, we need to have sincere love. Well, how do we do that? What is what does sincere love look like on the ground? Boots on the ground here kind of thing. I want to read this verse. We can kind of see where most scholars are coming from here. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So according to most scholars, the way we love genuinely, one of the ways at least, is 
but we avoid this kind of hypocritical or fake love, but have true kindness and love for others is by abhorring evil, the way in which we show love and holding fast to good. And this is, uh, this means we as Christians need to speak into each other's lives, caring about each other in a loving way. That means we have sincere, warm love. It doesn't mean doing the, the stereotypical church thing of a fake smile, you know, every, all the while you really hate that person and you don't care about them at all, you know. So you'll never tell them, oh, hey, good to see you. And you're like, I can't stand that person, <laughs> you know. Um, I'm sure none of you have done that. You're all perfect, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> caring for others means speaking the truth into their lives in a careful and kind way. An example of hypocritical uh, love is, uh, or fake love is shown by the Southern expression. And my in-laws are in from Louisiana. I'm not picking on the South, okay? Just I want to be clear about that. Um, it's not because you guys are here. I would use this. <laughs> but, you know, so this Southern expression, oh, bless your heart. Who's heard that expression? Well, I went to the South and I didn't realize that like that was an insult. I was like, oh, this is something to bless my heart. They're so sweet. Inside that's like saying like, I don't really like you or you're an idiot kind of thing, you know, when you say that to somebody. And it's, it comes off nice, doesn't it? It comes off like a really nice thing. And uh, it's like a fake nice expression, but you're really hating them. That's kind of like a hypocritical love. And it's not, this is a problem for the church everywhere, you know, to, you know, uh, to be, to be fake, it's not just, this. it's everywhere, you know, people do this. And it's so well known, that's where you get Dana Carvey's a church lady. The church lady is like, well, isn't that special, you know, you know, she's like, says all these like really positive things with a smile on her face coming off, you know, nice, but she's really being cutting in this, and that's how they're characterizing church people. So this is a issue that the church has is that we, we are called to be kind and caring, not nice and cold, Genuine kindness and warmth to each other. And here's the thing. Loving someone is not always saying things that are perceived to be nice. And, and people may not even interpret that as loving if it's not nice. Um, and again, that's why we have to go back to the definition of why, what is love and what does it matter? Because sometimes loving people means saying tough things. That may not be perceived to be nice. That is, that is true love. It's a real kindness to help somebody and when they're going through a difficult time or living in sin or whatever it is. So, so when a person, for instance, is living in sin and they're hurting themselves, hurting everybody around them, and their lifestyle is impairing their relationship with God, it would be unloving not to say anything, right? I mean, that's if you just kind of hold your peace and don't say anything. If someone's eternal soul is, is in danger or in trouble, to say nothing at all to that person is not loving. It may be nice, but it's not kind. And so, you know, the kind of a nice would be, well, let's just do whatever makes you happy. You know, I don't want to have to deal with the conflict. I'll just say what it just, whatever makes you happy. You know, that may be nice and friendly, but that's not genuinely, sincerely kind. And here's the bottom line. If you have somebody in the church who is, is cheating on their wife excessively, and, and I, I as a pastor sit there and say, oh, well, you know, isn't that special? You're just doing that. That's no big deal. I just want to affirm, and I want you to agree with your lifestyle. Keep on cheating. It's no big deal. It, that would not be loving. I need to speak truth and love into that person's life when they're destroying their life, their relationship with their spouse, and they're hurting their relationship with God. Love is not affirmation when a person is doing something evil, destructive, and completely messing up their life. This is why Paul says, true, real, sincere love is abhorring evil and holding fast and loving the good. 
Because when we hate evil and love the good, we are sacrificing our comfort, risking the relationship and to seek the person's good. Because we're, you know, when you say something tough to somebody, it's not only is uncomfortable, but you could risk the relationship. They could cut you off. And so it's not fun, but you're, you're taking that risk. You're sacrificing, showing, showing true love because you care about that person's ultimate good. And you're sacrificing yourself as a result, speaking the truth and love or tough love, as they would say. So Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, the Greek word, uh, you know, every single one of you have heard. So now you all know a little bit of Koine Greek this morning. So you can be like smart and say, nah, I know a little bit of Koine Greek. But, you know, it's the Greek word Philadelphia, where, where we get brotherly love, right? Pennsylvania is named after that city in Pennsylvania. That's where the Greek word comes from, brotherly love. That's the word here for love one another with brotherly affection. It actually is, seems redundant when you translate in the Greek. So the Bible teaches that Christians, we're, we're our spiritual family, and, uh, and we're, we're, to, we're to love each other according to that truth, that we're part of the body of Christ. We're in Christ by faith and trusting in Jesus, and we're forgiven of all of our sins. We're a company of, of, of sinners that are also saints in Christ. And so we're, we're, we're part of the family of God. So we're, you, you all are my spiritual family. And so this is how Jesus puts it. This is an, this is an important thing. Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, this is his biological mother, Mary, and his brother stood outside asking him to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father, trusting in him, and my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus says, yeah, this is, this is our spiritual family, the church. And in, in some cases here, it's to take even precedent in this, in this text here that Jesus is saying. It takes precedent even over our blood relatives. Now, I'm not saying, oh, well, you know, you go to the church, just forget about your blood relatives. I'm not saying that. We're still to care for our unbelieving blood relatives. And, uh, but Jesus is saying that this bond that we, have, we as Christians have, that's tighter because we're in the body of Christ. We're part of the church. We're part of the family of God. The larger point here is, yeah, well, we're, we're to love all people, even our enemies. That does not mean we're to have the same priorities towards everybody. The same resources and time spent in priorities and everything. So suppose somebody who just like hates me, just cannot stand, you know, my weird jokes or whatever it is. The one just really hates Nate. Well, I'm supposed to be kind to that person and pray for them. I'm not going to spend as much time with them and resources and energy on my enemy than I would my wife, my kids and church family. That would be completely absurd, Right. Uh, but I would be kind to my enemy to be kind to, to be caring to them to pray for them in their day-to-day life when I run into them. Another example, I love all of you, by the way. You all are a huge blessing. This is one of the best churches I've ever been a part of. I'm thankful to be here. Having this church family has been uh, just a life-giving experience and a blessing to me in so many ways. I love all of you so much, but in terms of my commitments, my wife is a higher commitment. Uh, I mean, the wife is God, your, your spouse and your, your kids, your church family, that kind of stuff. Because Paul says in Ephesians 5 that husbands are to lay down their, their life exclusively for their wife. So, I mean, in terms of my priorities, my wife is my highest human priority. I say human because God's my highest priority. 
uh, even before my children or even the church, my wife is that according to Ephesians 5. And so we are, as Christians, we're, we're called to love everyone, but we are limited. We're not, we're, not, we're not infinite beings. We are limited in time, in space, in resources. So we have to have the proper ordering in our lives. If you get out of that ordering, it kind of messes things up. And here Paul is saying that we as believers are to give each other pretty high priority. We're part of the same spiritual family. Um, and, you know, I we would give each other, I would give you guys more priority uh, um, over just, you know, if I was some, some, some random people on the street, you guys have, the, have a much higher priority. And I'm not saying that to be like mean towards people on the street. I love them too. But the Bible teaches this, that in terms of resources uh, given to others, in terms of, of energy spent, we're to do that with first the household of faith. It says here, so then we, uh, we, so then we, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Look at this. So we are to do good to everyone. We should be kind to everyone. No one's denying that. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. So yeah, we're to do good to everyone. You know, if you, if you see a homeless guy needs a meal, buy him a meal, I, go for it. Great, wonderful thing. We should care for the homeless. We should care for the needy, all those things. But there's a priority of research, uh, resources and it's given to people, you know, uh, I, I would give a, a priority of resources to people in the church. So true story. Um, but before Johnny was on board here and he, right, I used to, used to handle all the church calls of people asking for needs. And let me tell you, if, if you've ever heard about this, that is an adventure, handling church calls. And because people call churches, like, excessively asking the churches for money all the time. And, you know, I remember I did this before Johnny did this ministry, and I would get, like, scam calls. I'm really, like, caring and soft-hearted, you know, towards people's plights. And so I would get suckered into these people all the time, you know? And, I, and you know, I, would, I like, lose sleep over it. I'd, like, cry, you know? And, I, and, I, and it occurred to me one time, I called a pastor up, and I said, yeah, I got this person calling me. He's like, oh, that person called me, too. Yeah, that was a scam. We looked into that. It's like, I remember one lady, she got me, she talked to me for like two hours and like got, got me into her like world and her troubles. I was like, oh, I feel so bad. I got to help this person out. And I, I lost sleep over. I didn't sleep all night. And then I called someone. I found out, oh yeah, that was a scam, Nate. It's like, so it was hard. But I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we had so many scam calls coming in. That I can't say yes to all those people. And a lot of them I verified with pastors were genuine scams. So in terms of a church, how we function, we give a priority of resources to those in the church rather than random people that we can't verify. We don't know anything about their life. We can't check them out. So I'm going to give that to my to my brothers and sisters in, in Christ in terms of uh, priority of resources than just random people that call up the church. And so we're to here's Paul's point here, though. Big point. We're to show proper love to our spiritual family, the church. We're to spend time with one another. We're to pray with one another, share meals together, cry together, share life together, laugh together, and to keep each other accountable because this is our family here at the church. Now, Paul says in, 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 this, in, this, session, in this section here, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, as a Western, that's a little abstract and strange in our culture. In first century culture, we had this honor and shame culture. We don't have as much in Western society. So when people start talking about honor, I think of like, uh, like a samurai or like master splinter, like, oh, you're the honor, Raphael. You know, I think of like that kind of stuff, you know, and I, I, it's a little abstract. But I think for us, for Western ears, I think the uh, NJB translation captures a lot better um, 
this, this whole idea of what honor looks like and showing, outdoing one another and showing honor. I'm going to read it here. This is a, like a more, I think, clear translation from our own context. In brotherly love, let your feeling of deep affection for one another come to expression and regard others as more important than yourself. It's more important than yourself. So what it means to outdo each other in honor amounts to regarding people as more important than yourself. That's the essence of what it means for Christian love. That's what it looks like is this radically self-sacrificial choice. And so that's what, what, what part of the reason why we do verse by verse Bible preaching is if you were to open your Bible and just read this, you know, that you're to regard others as more important than even yourself. You're just flipping through, the, you know, your pages in the Bible. You're just kind of tossing through that. And you read that verse to, that we're to regard others as more important than ourselves. You know, you read that and you're like, it's, it's crushing because you're like, I don't do that. I don't do that perfectly at all. And so you're like, gosh, uh, this is so convicting. I, I can hardly do that for 10 minutes. Regard others as more valuable and important than myself. I mean, it is tough. And so when you read this verse out of context, you just read it. You're like, oh, man, that is totally not me. I totally don't do that. You know? And be honest, we don't. We, we are thinking about what's going on in our lives and our little worlds, how it's affecting us and our families. And our, we're not, it's hard for us to think of others. It's difficult. And it, it shows us like how sick we are. Like, I mean, you could, you could be serving at the church here and then all of a sudden you're serving, you know, helping out and you have a thought. You're like, I'm doing such a good thing here. <laughs> Man, I'm like, I hope someone sees me. Like doing this, show like what a great Christian I am, like how I'm better than everybody else. And you're like, oh gosh, no, why am I thinking that right now? You're like, you catch yourself, you're like, oh man, there's something wrong with me. And come on, you've done it. Just, just be honest with yourself, you've done it. I love this honest confession from a pastor. You know, it's so hard to consider others as more value and to be focused on serving others. I will, this is a pastor of a larger church, so I'll refrain from using his name. But he did admit this publicly, so it's on him, really. Um, he said this in front of like a bunch of people, hundreds and hundreds of people. And he says this um, at this big church that's well known that he was serving at. He says, on Wednesday, I walked into the sanctuary here getting ready to work out. And I walk into the sanctuary and they had not cleaned the church sanctuary uh, yet for this big church event. And I saw bulletins from last Sunday all over the pew, scattered all over. I mean, I literally, I mean, no one, no one was watching me. I walked literally row by row through the whole church and just started picking up bulletins and just clean. It was amazing. I just started cleaning up the sanctuary, he's saying. And it was unbelievable how quickly in my mind I started saying to myself, doing a good thing here. <laughs> I mean, I'm the senior pastor of this well-known, amazing church uh, that everybody knows. And uh, here I am picking up bulletins on my Wednesday, right? And it came in the back of my mind all of a sudden. This is what he says. Is, I think he's like, he says, I wish this, I, I actually thought this as God is my witness. I hope some of the staff members come in here and see me doing this. He wanted to say, I'm a sick man, okay? And that's why J.C. Ryle said, there is something even in our best works that desperately needs to be pardoned. So true. Uh, and we all do that. If you're being honest in your honest moments, you're, and you're just driving your car thinking your own thoughts, we are, we are all like this. We are self-focused, self-consumed. So then how can, we, how can I ever regard others as more important than myself? How can I ever do this perfectly? I can't. 
I, I, it's impossible that I can on my own strength. But Jesus did this for me. Jesus lived a perfect life. It says in Philippians, he regarded others as more significant than himself. He was obedient to the point of the cross all throughout his life. Every part of his life from birth to death was about him giving and sacrificing and focusing on saving others rather than himself. It was not on, it was, Jesus was never unloving. He was never selfish. And not only did he live this perfect life of counting others more significant than himself, even though he was God and he's God in the flesh. He has infinite value as God in the flesh. And yet he regarded us finite fallen sinners as more significant than himself, taking on a perfect life and being punished on the cross. Jesus has loved you more than anyone has showed that to you by giving up everything for you. And I love the way how it perfectly describes a beautiful picture of love in the gospel. By trusting in Jesus, this is the love that God has for you. In 1 John 4.10, in this is love. This is a very picture, the most perfect picture of love, not that we have loved God. It's not our goodness or greatness or our love of God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word uh, propitiation, it's kind of like a weird word in Greek. Halasmas means turning aside wrath and punishment, which we deserve. We have sinned against an infinite being. We deserve an infinite punishment. We have sinned against the greatest being. We deserve the greatest punishment. And we have that coming to us. But Jesus on that cross, that punishment that was coming to us that we would have gotten in hell, Jesus averted that. He turned the stream in the other direction and he, he, he took that wrath on himself on the cross. The punishment we would have received in hell, he took on the cross. So because of Jesus taking hell for us, we will never go to hell by trusting in him. I mean, that is amazing love that God incarnate took on hell for us if you trust in him. And that good news that Jesus gave us everything, paid it all, all your sins, past, present, and future. That's the main point of the book of Romans, that he saved us entirely. And so when, when Paul gives this exhortation here, we, we can't take it out of context to, to count others more valuable than ourselves. That we can't take that out of context. That's in the context of Jesus giving everything already to us by faith in him. Already. And so, because everything you already need, you already have in Christ, and you're, you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're loved by God, you're free. You're free, to be, you're free to not be so obsessed about yourself and what you're getting from this or what you're getting from this person or that person or whoever it is. Rather, you, you start practicing the, the beautiful uh, virtue of Christian growth, which is self-forgetfulness. Forgetting about how important you are and focusing on God and Christ and counting others more important than yourself. That is a virtue it cultivates, is this virtue of self-forgetfulness and focusing on the glory and beauty of God in Christ and the gospel. I want to close with this quote by Milton Vincent. The gospel reveals to me the breathtaking glory and loveliness of God. And in so doing, it lures my heart away from the love of self and leaves me enthralled by him instead. The more I behold God's glory in the gospel, the more lovely he appears to me and the more lovely he appears, the more self 
love of self fades into the background like a former love interest who can no longer compete for my affections. That's what Jesus does in our heart when we focus on his great love for us. Let us pray and give God thanks for that in Christ.